0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the incomparable THR's chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's up, Dan? My sympathies to you and the Boston Red Sox.
1: I've had a long time to get over that. That's what happens when the team starts 3-8 and eight for the season. Uh, you just can't dig out of that. Is it just me, or does this week feel like it's been about three months long?
2: Yeah, the last month has felt like it's about three years long.
1: <sighs> well, on the bright side, I mean, there's lots to talk about. Impeachment hearings! Wait, no, that's not what we podcast about. Sorry, I thought this was season three of Slow Burn.
2: <laughs> no? Okay. Headlines! Headlines! <laughs> Getting started, Jeff Hirsch has been promoted to president and CEO at Stars. He replaces Chris Albrecht, who was forced out after the Lionsgate merger closed. Hirsch is best known so far for making some pretty sexist remarks about Outlander. So, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a good start this week, Dan. I, I'm just—you uh, did
1: such a good job of controlling your enthusiasm there. I—I I thought that was terrific. Um, also, over at Netflix, Shonda Rhimes has set her ninth, yes, ninth, ninth project with Netflix. This one is called Notes on Love. And is an individual episodic show. Don't we call those anthologies?
2: Yes, but there's now two kinds of anthologies, right? The pure where it's every episode is a different story, it's part of a larger thematic show, and then there's every season is a different story. Okay. So I think it's important to clarify.
1: I, to, to me, this sounds a lot like Amazon's Modern Love, which premieres in a couple weeks and that we'll talk about. But anyway, uh, yes, individual episodes will be focused on marriage. Writers like Norman Lear and Steve Martin, as well as Rhymes herself, will write episodes. It's unclear if it's a drama or a comedy, but I've watched a lot of broadcast shows already this week where it's also unclear if they're a drama <laughs> or a comedy, so it's just how this is all going. Next.
2: Elsewhere, Hulu has scrapped its Planned Ghost Rider live action Marvel drama. Yeah, this was one of two Marvel shows that they picked up in May, straight to series. Creative issues, they fired a showrunner, replaced him with another, and basically what I'm told from sources is that they wanted an origin story, and that wasn't what was delivered either time from either person.
1: I'm excited about this piece of news. Uh, Fleabag's Andrew Scott, yes, you know him as the Hot Priest, but maybe you should know him as other things too, will star as Mr. Ripley or Tom Ripley or whatever in a new uh, Showtime drama series from Steve Zalian based on the Patricia Highsmith novels. I love the novels. I love the Anthony Minghella movie. I think Andrew Scott is nifty. Count me in on that one.
2: Elsewhere at Showtime, they've renewed On Becoming a God in Central Florida. Dan, which I think you also loved.
1: I liked it. I don't know that I loved it, but I am totally there with the renewal by all means. Bring it
2: on. One of my favorites, Ray Romano, has also been cast to star opposite Kristen Miladi in an HBO Max comedy called Made for Love.
1: Okay, this week In Greg Berlanti TV series news, the CW and Greg Berlanti are prepping another spinoff from Arrow, this one a backdoor pilot focused on three female cast members. I am not being derisive of a female centric Arrow spinoff, nor of Greg Berlanti and his 75th uh, TV show, just merely, boy, that man has a lot of shows on TV.
2: Yeah, if this one goes, I think by my count, this would be 19.
1: I feel like it's higher than that. Or I feel like there are maybe like three or four that haven't been actually... It might be
2: 20. I I think there are
1: several that haven't been picked up to series that you're not counting, obviously, because they're not actually series as yet. But I feel like the potential is there. Yeah,
2: he just... Last week, we talked about him doing a Showtime project with another of my favorites, Stephen Fox, creator of You're the Worst. That's also in development. He's got other development with the writers from Supergirl and the showrunner from All American. As usual, this time of year, he has a quite sizable development slate. Over at the CW, Supernatural favorite Jared Padalecki is attached to star in a reboot of Chuck Norris' Western, Walker, Texas Ranger. And we should clarify, a network has not yet been attached to this one yet, but the CW is considered a likely home for the CBS Studios show, especially considering Padalecki's history with the network. And yeah, they, they need to keep both of those guys on somehow.
1: <sighs> and circling back around to Netflix. Netflix has, and this was last week's news, but it was after we podcasted. So Netflix has renewed Glow for a fourth and final season. I'm at least happy that they're going to give it a chance to reach a conclusion. Uh, next up, Netflix maybe be renewed Dear White People, which was always only supposed to be four seasons and has not yet been renewed for that fourth season. Come on, do the right thing.
2: Yeah, and also just feels like four seasons is the new six season at this point in the industry. Elsewhere, you know, we talked last week a lot about the big Seinfeld syndication deal 500 million dollars for global exclusive rights at netflix whilst producers sony tv have also resold the show in cable syndication and it will move from tbs which is owned by warner media to viacom come 2021 so next up for seinfeld will be a new broadcast syndication deal so yeah sony is really uh keeping the brinks cars busy so (laughs)
1: and last and probably least nick cannon will host a syndicated daytime talk show next year or something
2: yeah well he filled in for wendy williams and he's now reteaming with the same producers of her show um and he'll launch next year so yeah okay whatever yeah i mean i when writing that story i was just i was blown away by just how much stuff he's got going on at the same time oh, no
1: he's he's busy as hell there's, there's no question he is he is as always a successful man nick cannon Get on with your world domination, Nick
2: Cannon. (laughs) Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. The Emmys are officially in the books, Dan. HBO finished first with 34. No tie with Netflix this year. They are back in sole position at the top. Netflix, of course, finished second with 27. Amazon rounded out the top three with 15. On the series front, to no surprise, Game of Thrones went in with a historic nomination sum and led the pack with 12, which I think a lot of people would have thought would have been higher. HBO limited series Chernobyl was second, followed by Marvelous Mrs. Maisel over at Amazon. Dan, you had a lot of thoughts about the show, and I think we are on the same page, that the show was largely a hot mess, but the winners, and especially some of those speeches really saved it.
1: Yeah, you would have if you watched this show, thought that it was a show from someone who had never done this before. The show was produced by Don Mischer, who has produced more award shows than basically anybody. He knows better. And every decision he made on this show, from the lack of host to the opening shtick to all of the things that Fox no doubt made him do to whore relentlessly for uh, masked singer one thing after another it was all genuinely awful Uh, and of course thomas lennon sorry don't want to let thomas lennon off the hook doing his but even
2: he admitted that that he had a crap job he did
1: every but seriously every decision that was made by the production team was a bad one. I don't know that I can think of a single thing with the possible exception of Halsey singing time after time with oh, the that was, necrology. That was, that was very great. good. So good. You you correctly selected somebody who can sing to sing a song. Well done. Otherwise, every decision was a bad decision. And, you know, under normal circumstances, that would lead to three hours of utterly excruciating television and general misery. But it happened they got an awful lot of stuff right. And so I was so busy frequently being happy by the things that were winning the awards that I was only occasionally being annoyed by the telecast.
2: itself. It was an emotional roller coaster because it, it really felt like when you see like, and, and look, I didn't go to the ceremony this year. I watched from home, but like all of the ads for Mass Singer, especially during the show, in and out of the show, the little pop-ups on screen, the relentless, like the Ken Jong TikTok bit, like just- It was horrible. <laughs> all of it was bad. But, you know, to your point- You know, the the speeches and the winners. I mean, look, and that's not to say there weren't some some head-scratching winners here, but I think both of us got our big wishes that we wanted on this. You know, Billy Porter, for me, was one of my favorite moments of the night. And Patricia Arquette getting emotional about the loss of Alexis Arquette and using her speech to promote visibility for trans—for employing transgender uh, individuals. I mean— it was really moving. And, of course, Billy Porter making history, that made my night. I think my, I scared my neighbors and definitely scared my dog when I screamed when he won.
1: No, it was one great moment after another. You had Jarrell Jerome getting to call out the exonerated five, as we're now calling them. And that was a great moment. Michelle
2: uh, Williams. Michelle Lydia Williams, Coupe. who gives
1: fantastic award show speeches. You would have thought someone would have given her a Golden Globe or an Oscar at some point. Just And now they know that if they do... They can expect something like this, so that's a plus. Yeah, I think I think the the Jarell Jerome win for when they see us kind of obscured how exactly how close that show came to getting shut out in the main telecast. And if they had had the Exonerated Five in the audience and won nothing, that would have been horrible. So thank heavens Jerel Jerome won both because he was really wonderful, and it's sort of a breakout star making performance, et cetera, et cetera. But also the ability to give. A standing ovation to those five men was an important thing that the show needed and almost didn't get. So thank heavens.
2: Yeah. Well, what about some of the other winners, Dan? I mean, there were a lot of big surprises on the night. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Fleabag, the big three awards. And then, of course, you know, Jason Bateman, who I think (laughs) when you see his reaction, just to me, one of the best uh, reaction shots of the night. Even he was surprised that he won.
1: He was definitely surprised. He was also, I think he was doing a bit. I think he, I think he is, I think deadpan is Jason Bateman's thing. And I think he was somewhat playing into it. Regardless, it was a ridiculous win. And, you know, he probably treated it with the respect it deserved. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, we, last week we sat here with Scott Feinberg and I said that really all I required was that Phoebe Waller-Bridge won something. During the show. And so she won writing almost immediately. And I'm like, yay, okay, great. Uh, Whatever happens from here, she's got her Emmy. Everybody's happy. And then she kept winning and all totally deserved. And then upset
2: Julia Louis Dreyfus for Veep. And of course, Leebag beat Veep for best comedy. Two wins that I think everyone. Was anticipating to go to Veep and Julia.
1: Certainly, the actors won. I think there people felt there was some openness to comedy series that maybe Marvelous Mrs. Maisel might sneak in, but it, you know, it won two supporting actor things at the very top of the show. So there was the kind of sensation, oh no, is it going to be uh, Mrs. Maisel sweep? And it was, it was not. And Alex Borstein gave a great speech about you know, centering on her Holocaust survivor grandmother, so...
2: Another great moment.
1: And she's great on the show. Whatever my reservations about the show are, and I feel like my enthusiasm has kind of waned. I feel like it was reasonably high when the show premiered last fall for its second season, and it's kind of dwindled, but she's always wonderful. So... Yeah, there were there were a lot of very, very good, very, very deserving winners. We can just completely and totally ignore the chunk in the middle of the show where they give repetitive awards to Saturday Night Live uh, last week, tonight and RuPaul's Drag Race every year.
2: And I mean, those SNL wins were the only wins during the primetime telecast that broadcast won. So it's basically, I think, as one of our I think maybe Scott Feinberg said last week, they're continuing to televise their own demise.
1: There's, there's that. There's a certain eunuchin and orgy feeling to the whole thing. Uh, you know, they, they get to go, they get to throw their parties, and they get to watch other people celebrate, and you know that that is what it is that make better shows would be my best advice for how to how to become a bigger player in these things uh because i've watched everything that's going to be on the broadcast networks this fall and ain't nothing making it into the emmy races next year so if you're not attempting to play the game you can't be unhappy when you're not winning the game
2: and And... (laughs) by not winning the game you also mean that the numbers i mean the the telecast was down 33 percent from last year and it notched an all-time low falling to less than 10 million total viewers for the first time and by less than 10 million i mean under seven it was 6.98 million and a 1.6 in the demo that's yeah
1: even if you go with the idea that fox emmys are always slightly lower and that all award shows have been dipping recently and all of that yeah this year's drop was a steep and precipitous drop and
2: and whereas i think going hostless for the oscars worked i don't think it really did in this one
1: i mean among other things the oscars really mostly got lucky, I think, this past year. I think whether it was Black Panther or just that the controversy around Kevin Hart and the hostlessness benefited it, and that became a narrative. But Fox wasn't even able to make the lack of host into a narrative this year. It was just nothing, and it gave them no way whatsoever to promote the show based on the amount that Fox used this telecast to pimp embarrassingly for Masked Singer. And we haven't even mentioned the awful adam divine musical number also featuring mask singer people
2: i have blocked I, that out completely
1: i do not understand why fox didn't just get those four five if you include the ubiquitous nick cannon who's probably too busy to host so get the other ones jenny mccarthy is not doing anything else i mean she did the pre-show which, which was rough which was embarrassing i have to give some credit to her on this i think the thing with the interview with christina applegate about the, I wanted to be like you when I was growing up. I feel like that was a, that, that's was all that. been a little bit overblown in making fun of her for. Christina Applegate was a teenage star. So you could be her peer and be 13 years old watching her when she was 14 and go, I wanna be like her when I grow up. That to me is perfectly fair. She was a horrible interviewer otherwise. So make fun of her as much as you want just for that one goof or whatever. Whatever. Christina
2: Ablegate was a teenage star. Yeah, I I missed that. I didn't tune into the pre-show stuff until after the Dodger game was over. So priorities.
1: From Emmy past, let's look to the future.
2: Yes. Batting second. Now let's look ahead to what's next for the big winners and maybe the 2020 ceremony.
3: Number two.
2: Yes, this is a nuts, crazy, crazy early discussion, but... It's worth having, nonetheless. So, the big winners: Game of Thrones, one for drama; it's over. Fleabag, one for comedy; it's it's done. It's not returning for another season.
1: Chernobyl, one for limited series; it's, it's over.
2: It's <laughs> truly a limited series. Uh, no shade there, Big Little Lies, but uh, yeah, maybe it is a shade. But any, anyway, so you know, looking ahead, Phoebe Waller-Bridge this week celebrated her, her big Emmy wins with a sixty million dollar, three year overall deal with Amazon. So she's going to create and make new projects for the streamer. She next exec produces a show called Run starring Merritt Weaver for HBO. A lot of the narrative around HBO has been like, oh, what's this cable network going to do without Game of Thrones? Well, A, they're developing at least two more pilots and a couple more scripts. That, That franchise is far from over, but... The bigger question to me, too, is what's going on in Amazon? What's next for them? Obviously, they've got more seasons of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which will continue. It, it seems like it's just solidified its position as an awards darling. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff coming up. You know, Succession won for writing in a drama series, which kind of almost tees that up to be a era apparent for Game of Thrones. Then you've got some new platforms entering the space. Apple, of course, Morning Show, Jan Anderson, Reese Witherspoon. There's big stars in all of those. Disney Plus, I, it's unclear if they'll be a player. Dan, there's a lot going on.
1: There really is. I I think that definitely the HBO situation is fairly clear, and I don't think HBO needs to worry all that much. I do not expect that Succession is going to be nominated for 32 Emmys next year, the way Game of Thrones was. But I think the surprise win for writing, completely deserved and so happy with it, I, I think it allowed the people in the room to say, okay, well, there's the love for Succession. Now you add that to the increasing buzz across the second season. The first season was nominated for, I think, five Emmys. It would not surprise me to see it go to 15 or 20 next year. I, I would expect it will be a massive burst because suddenly you have to keep in mind that Game of Thrones sucked up eight or seven or eight supporting actor and actress nominations, which is basically where Succession lives, I can imagine Succession picking up a couple nominations in each one of those categories. Plus, next year. Polly
2: Hunter has been tremendous this season, so she could get a guest actress in a drama. It'll be very too. interesting yeah. to see
1: because currently I think her number of episodes is right on the line. So I think she's about to tip over into supporting actress, but I would pretty much guarantee she'll get nominated there. And then HBO has Watchmen on tap and anyone who doesn't think Regina King, a three-time Emmy winner, is going to be a lead actress in a drama series nominee for Watchmen next year. I guarantee you she's going to be a nominee next year for Watchmen. That's you can put money on that silliness. Uh,
2: Plus Handmaid's Tale will be back. So the part of its third season that wasn't eligible this year will be eligible. And then depending on when the next season comes out, they could possibly have a season and a half of eligibility. Big Little Lies, of course, season two will be in the drama category. You can imagine Meryl Streep will get nominated. It'd be impossible to to think that (laughs) you get Meryl Streep to do a TV show and she doesn't get a nomination.
1: I would guess there will be several nominations for that, despite the buzz that was surrounding the Andrea Arnold, David E. Kelly stuff at the end of the season, which feels like a really good place to uh, plug our rather terrific interview with David E. Kelly from two to three weeks ago. So you should definitely check that out. It is one of our favorite showrunner spotlight interviews thus far. He was very candid and spoke and,
2: openly about what happened behind the scenes there. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, you know, if they can get him out on the road talking about it to people, I assume that that will help somewhat cover up for whatever negativity there is. Then there's the question of the Breaking Bad movie, which is coming in a couple of weeks. Will that be eligible? It feels like it's going to be right on the edge, as with everything movie related at Netflix. But I would assume they're more likely to promote it as a movie, uh, which means it's Likely to be this year's version of the Deadwood movie, losing to an episode of an anthology drama uh, because Netflix has found a way to game the system on Black Mirror. But maybe with Breaking Bad in the mix, Netflix will be like, wait, we don't need to have this anthology drama series masquerading as original movies when it's really not. So yeah. We'll
2: see. Yeah. Like I said, there already a lot going on. And, and, you know, one thing that I wanted to mention in, in our first segment, but I, you know, since we're closing the book on the Emmys, at least for now, I still can't believe that none of the actresses from Game of Thrones won an Emmy. You know, look, this was not a show that I was interested in when it was my very first assignment when I got promoted here to TV writer. And I remember Lacey Rose handed me the pilot and said, this is going to be a big deal. Watch this pilot and find a story. And I watched it, and the thing that turned me off was the way that the women were treated. And the thing that kept me watching is the evolution and the growth and how incredible the, the the female characters on this show were. And the fact that none of them won an Emmy is just a massive oversight by the Emmys.
1: I don't know. I mean, look, you have to go and you have to look at who they lost to and what they lost to and, and if that feels like it was a genuine quote unquote problem like this year, for example, I think that Maisie Williams, who probably should have been the one to win this year, I think that she selected a a bad episode. Simply put, I, I think she just, she chose, she chose the big fight episode where all she did was ran around, run around a building. And then the exciting thing that happens at the end of the episode, the episode before where, you know, she lost her virginity and all of that, that was the episode in which she was actually acting. And I think if they'd submitted that, she would have won. That's a fair point. So I am, I am much less bothered by that. I think probably uh, Dame Diane Rig probably should have won a year or two ago. I think there, that was, one option but really the only actor who won in any form was peter dinklage so they kind of made the decision and it won plenty of emmys and it got its drama series emmy and and all salute game of thrones yay
2: well let's move on to our third segment up next let's take a look at some of the high profile new and returning shows that are premiering in october
3: number three
2: So much new content coming in October. Among the returning favorites, you've got Sorry for Your Loss on Facebook Watch, Big Mouth, Peaky Blinders, Kaminsky Method on Netflix, The Walking Dead, which remains a monster hit on AMC, plus the final seasons of Mr. Robot and Silicon Valley on USA and HBO. New stuff, Fox's Almost Family from Jason Kadams. A lot of Netflix stuff, Raising Dion on Netflix, uh, Paul Rudd. Uh, Living With Yourself, where he plays Twins, plus the Breaking Bad movie, CW, all of their new shows premiere, including Batwoman, the rest of the Arrowverse and all their fall fare. Get Shorty, USA Network's Born spinoff. Dreadstone. Make it stop. There's so looking for Alaska, Modern Love on Amazon.
1: Second season of Castle Rock on Hulu.
2: Watchmen on HBO with Miss, as well as Mrs. Fletcher starring Katherine Hahn. And then Tyler Perry's first new shows on BET, The Oval and Sisters. Dan, October is just as almost as feels almost as crowded as September.
1: <sighs> I might have slightly less of the the network crap that i've been up to my neck in uh, or mostly it just means ongoing episodes of those then the the good thing about so many mediocre new network shows is that i have not yet necessarily felt anything that i'm compelled to keep watching going forward i think last year when all was said and done i added all american single parents and uh, and the kids are all right. I think those were the three shows I, I set up season recordings for and, and two of
2: those survived
1: and two of them survived. One of them was canceled and whatever, you know, and I th- I think it's entirely possible that if you were to talk to me in four months, which you probably will, because we do a podcast where you talk to me. Yeah, I, I might not have added a single show to my DVR. So I mean,
2: have you reset any program recordings for some of these broadcast shows? No,
1: not at no. all, because because there's not I, like I will definitely check out some of the things that haven't sent additional episodes. Uh, so I had very negative reviews for NBC's Perfect Harmony and Sunnyside and they were unable for whatever reason mm-hmm, to get additional episodes of those. So I will watch an additional episode or two of those, but those I'll probably do it on Hulu and sort of catch as catch can. No, there there are still a lot of big things. There are a lot of big franchise things, whether it's Castle Rock going with a sort of junior misery season with Lizzie Kaplan, whether it's Watchmen, which is not exactly the graphic novel, but it's kind of a sequel to it. And then you've got Treadstone, which is Jason Bourne without Jason Bourne, which was already the Jeremy Renner movie that no one particularly liked.
2: And from the guy who did Heroes, Tim Crane.
1: <sighs> Way to go and knock my uh, enthusiasm from that one from a two down to a one. Jeez. And that show's
2: been in the works for what feels like three years. I don't
1: think it's necessarily a bad idea, but it sort of is the. It's from the USA brand of knockoff movies like Shooter, which I don't. The USA doesn't know what their brand is, you know. They I don't think
2: they have one at this point they, after Mr. Robot. They
1: thought that Mr. Robot was going to change the entire network. They thought that that was going to be the show that was going to make them, you know, prestige TV, yeah. TV they heroes. Re, they did a
2: complete rebranding around after Mr. Robot took off in season one. And, and, and now they've got... Just didn't work. A suit spinoff, which makes zero sense comparatively when you're talking about a network that's home to Mr. Robot.
1: Except that you know that it will do a small audience and it'll whatever in the same way that... In the same way that likely Treadstone will, even though Treadstone is not the brand and they might discover that in a hurry. But
2: remake that show, do that show on Peacock and lean harder into the prestige element or maybe bring in some of those characters from the movies. You just wanted
1: to say Peacock.
2: No, I really didn't.
1: (sighs) Yes. So in any case, it's going to be an aggressive month of programming. Some of it might actually be good. Um, Is there
2: anything you're looking forward to besides the Breaking Bad movie?
1: No, I'm looking forward to a handful of these things. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing a second and third episode of Watchmen. I was not fully on board with Castle Rock, and I'm not 100% sure I even finished it. I definitely made it to the Panama Ultimate episode. I don't know that I watched the finale, but the new season looks fantastic. Lizzie Kaplan as uh, as the Kathy Bates character from Misery, I am, I am there for that. There are a lot of things. I think that looking for Alaska is above average. John Green, as such things go. And it's a good match with uh, Josh Schwartz. Speaking of, you should totally listen to our Josh Schwartz showrunner spotlight interview. It's another great one. We talk to good people, Leslie.
2: We do. I'm obviously biased, but yeah, we do.
1: I think we talk to good people and good people say smart things to us. So yeah, October, hell of a lot of TV. And uh, and yes, we'll be talking so much about it.
2: Up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment.
1: Number four.
2: Joining us this week is the co creator of one of Primetime's longest running shows and a five time best comedy series Emmy winner. We're thrilled to have Modern Family co showrunner Steve Levitan joining TV's Top Five. Welcome, Steve. My pleasure. Let's get started. One of the first things that Carrie Burke did after taking over ABC was to announce that Modern Family would end with its 11th season. Can you talk us through the decision to end now? And was there any part of you that wanted the show to go on, as they say?
3: You know, I, I think that we always, the number in our minds was always 10 seasons to tell you the truth. And um, and I really thought that last season was going to be our last season. In my mind, With the birth of the children, you know, that was a logical place to stop. And because we had always said 10, it just felt like a, a good round number. And it just sort of felt right to me. Towards the end of last year, we just started getting word that a lot of people wanted it to continue. That was the studio, the network, the cast, the crew. You know, they all really wanted it to go on. So we just had to have, you know, a really... A really significant conversation to say, well, can, what can we do this year? What do we feel like we're capable of? Uh, do we feel like we're going past, you know, the natural end point? And you know, we felt we can do 18 episodes, which is what we committed to do. Uh, where normally we have done as many as 24 and lately 22, um, but we thought we could do 18 and, and really focus on the end. And that's what we decided to do. Never for one second did we consider going past this season.
1: Well, you mentioned that it seemed like there was a natural end last season with the babies and all of that as you kind of examined the idea of, OK, what more stories do we have? How did you approach where you wanted to take it with an actual endpoint
3: in mind? Well, to be perfectly candid, you know, we have we have some ideas about the endpoint um, at this point. We haven't gotten down to the details of that yet. We've spoken about, you know, what we think we would like to have happen, what kinds of finales we like, and how do we, you know, live up to the expectations of the audience after all this time. So now, you know, I think we're just focused on delivering, you know, a very funny and a very emotional ending that that gives people a sense of satisfaction after the journey they've taken watching this family grow up you know, and grow together. So, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the finales we've loved and the finales that didn't quite work. And, and why why was that? And that's, that's as, as far as we have gone at
1: this point. Do you want to give us one of each of those two, perhaps? A finale that you loved and a finale that maybe
3: didn't work for one reason or another? Well, I don't want to talk about things that don't work <laughs> because it's hard enough to do in this business. But, you know, I, I look at something like, for example, the Mary Tyler Moore show. You know, it just it had everything. It had heart. It had giant urn laughs. You know, you really felt something when Lou Grant turned to that to those people and, you know, said, I think something along the lines of, I I cherish you people, (laughs) you know, you just felt it. And then, you know, there was a goodbye there and, 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 you know, the audience got to say goodbye just like those characters did. So that's an example of an excellent finale. Of course,
2: one of the things that's been talked about a lot has been, you know, now that Disney owns the show and doesn't have to pay the licensing fees anymore is maybe seeing a spinoff you know, Carrie has spoken openly about wanting that. And, you know, a, as a longtime viewer, I would love to see, you know, to follow the kids and as they start and as we saw in the in the season finale, start their own families. Is that something that you guys are still talking about or considering? I mean, you've tried a few in the past, right?
3: You know, we never did try one. No, we, we were we got into the idea of one for 10 minutes and then the guys who were going to work on it decided that um, they just wanted to stay on the show. And so that sort of put the end to that one before it even got started. Right now, honestly, we are just thinking about ending this show. Sarah Hyland, I I understand, is involved in a new project. So that probably, um, you know, obviously would would affect our ability to use her um, for this. So I, I don't, I don't know. We're not, I'm not thinking about that. I, I would like to end this thing, give it the, the send off it deserves. And then I'd like to start thinking about something else. Well, as you look
1: back over the narrative journey of the show, how much do you think was kind of steered by these actors, these young actors who were all basically newcomers when you hired them? And over the years, did you have strategies in mind for alternatives if say two, three, four of them either outgrew the ability or desire to act
3: well no honestly once we were going you know it's it was just a, a a ridiculous miracle that we cast you know 10 people in the beginning and we never had a moment of thinking do we recast a single one of them i mean that just doesn't happen and fortunately every single person has been extremely happy uh on on the show um, and so nobody's wanted to leave, and um, nobody here has wanted anyone to leave. It it, it truly is a, a it's as cliche as it sounds. It, it, it there's a family environment here. People genuinely love one another. There's a closeness to that family because you know these kids grew up, you know, around these adults, and when they're all together, you just see it, you feel it. it, it, it you know, there's such a history there. I don't think. One of them contemplated for two minutes uh, leaving before the show ended.
2: Uh, You know, and and in this competitive landscape, you know, few shows are reaching the 100 episode milestone, let alone 200. You guys will wrap with around 250. You know, given where, you know, the state of the industry right now, where most shows aren't getting past four or maybe even six seasons once those initial contracts are up. Do you think this is the end of an era?
3: I hate to say, you know, it's the end of an era because (laughs) coming from me, it sounds self-aggrandizing. I do think that obviously the landscape has changed dramatically. You know, we're going to see so many more shows with short orders, you know, shows doing 8, 10, 12 episodes a year. And, you know, of course, the, the audience is fragmented in a way that they just weren't, you know, even 10 years ago. So maybe we are in some weird way the last, you know, big, broad comedy, you know, that uh, came from the the network machine. But, you know, you never know something, something magical can come along and and grab people again. And uh, I wouldn't bet against it. But the odds are tougher against those shows because there's just been so there's just so many options for people.
2: Yeah. One of the things that's so interesting about the the landscape we're in right now is these library values are escalating like we've never seen, you know, for, uh, Seinfeld just sold to Netflix for $500 million for global rights. The Modern Family Library is next out of the gate. You know, I think given the interest in supplying these, these libraries to upcoming streamers, and obviously Disney has Disney Plus coming soon, do you think that that's going to have any kind of an impact on how long some of these broadcast comedies will continue? You know, like the need for these libraries that... There's just not a lot of shows that, like I said, that will hit that mark. And I wonder if the two will eventually, one will influence the other.
3: Well, you know, right now we're at a, you know, just a fascinating time where, you know, gigantic companies are being built on the backs of, of hit shows. So their value is uh, multiplied for, you know, the value for those shows where it just used to be about, you know, okay, we're going to sell some ads during your show. Now it's like, well, we're going to build a streamer in part on the back of your show and that streamer is going to be worth billions of dollars. So yeah, there's, a, there's real value there. It's a business of hits. It always has been, it always will be. And, um, you know, these, these streamers, these big companies need hits now more than ever as they're trying to you know, grab market share. So, you know, it's an amazing time, obviously to to have a show that people want to see and to have a show, especially with 250 episodes that hasn't been on a streamer yet yeah we're in a pretty good position but you know it's it's uh, who knows where the world is going to go next but uh, right now it couldn't be a better time
1: you mentioned how rare and unlikely it is that all of these young actors that none of them wanted to leave it's also incredibly rare for showrunners to stick around on long running shows as long as you and Christopher have um if I'd told you in the first season that that would be the case, what would you have responded?
3: Well, if you had told me your show is going to go 10 or 11 years, what, what are the chances that you're going to stay with it? I would have said the the chances are excellent um, because, you know, I did a show many, many years ago. The first show I ever created was an NBC comedy called Just Shoot Me. And, you know, I did it and and, and it got on the air and it, and it worked and, You know, but after like a season and a half or so, I got an offer to go elsewhere. And the company I was with at the time sort of tried to play hardball with me. And I really had no choice at the time I felt but to take that other offer. I ended up staying for another year or so, very involved. And then I became someone who, you know, just came to table reads and gave notes and did the best I could to help put out fires whenever there was one. But I always regretted it. While the people who ran the show after I left did a wonderful job, it changed a little bit. It wasn't exactly the show it was, you know, when I was running it. Um, You know, it never is when a creator leaves. So I always felt bad about that. I felt I let let the actors down a little bit. And so I always said that if I get the chance to do that again, I'm going to see it through. I'm going to see something through from beginning to end. So that's always been my goal here. I, I I didn't expect it to be this long, but I never thought for a second about leaving until the show was over.
1: Well, along those lines, since Modern Family premiered, I believe you've only had one other show that you produced on air with LA to Vegas, and that only lasted for a season. How has your approach to kind of simultaneous development changed in these 10 years? And do you have a sense of, of how you're gonna approach diving back into the development pool?
3: Yeah. I mean, in that one, you know, I, I, the show was written and, um, and I got asked to direct it and, you know, by directing it, I became a producer on it. So I wasn't, I'm not trying to, in any way, distance myself from and I really not, but I, 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 you know, it was an existing project that came to me and I did it, you know, mostly as a director of the pilot. I realized how rare something like Modern Family is and how lucky we are. And I really didn't see the benefit as we were going through all this to taking my eye off the ball. I'm just so grateful for Modern Family. I, you know, I, I used to say in the very beginning, like if if Modern Family were someone else's show, I would have been so jealous because it's exactly the kind of show I would have wished I, wished I had created. So the fact that I was involved in it, I, I, I never took it for granted. And I just, you know, probably in part because of that Just Shoot Me experience, I, I just didn't feel like, like, oh, OK, I'm going to t- develop six more things and not do a great job on any of them because I'm spread across three different sets and all that. Because I, I just thought, you know, the, the show would suffer. And this is, you know, a, a unique thing in my life and uh, in, in anybody's life. So this was a choice I made. Now when Modern Family ends, I'm going to enter a different phase of my life. And my goal going forward is to go in the opposite direction and that would be to start to nurture other talents and to bring help bring other projects to fruition. Some of them may start with me. I have an idea for a couple of shows that I will write on the pilot. But I want to have other showrunners in there and I don't want to be the person who day to day is in the writer's room. I, I wanna be overseeing, you know, several shows. That's my that's my goal, at least, going forward.
2: You know, and it's so interesting that you say that because right now the overall deals space is just so red hot. And most of the, the people who are getting the bigger deals are these producers who are doing exactly what you just outlined, juggling multiple projects, developing new writers, also still writing some some of their own projects. Your overall deal was up last summer. Obviously, a long relationship with Fox, which is now part of the Disney fold. Now that you've been integrated with Disney after the merger, I mean, what do you think so far about the company and are you going to stay?
3: Yeah, um, we never really did an announcement, but I did make a new deal with Disney. I sort of preferred to stay under the radar on that one a little bit. And that's, uh, you know, a multiple year deal. Listen, I'm very close with just about everybody, you know, at that new company. I'm, obviously very close with Dana Walden and with Peter Rice. And I'm friends with Bob Iger. I'm friends with Carrie Burke. You know, I have long histories. uh, I have a long history with all of those people. And, you know, and add to it, you know, Howard Kurtzman and just, you know, I, I have a wonderful relationship with the people at 20th Century Fox Television. You know, I always had an issue with being associated with Fox and Fox News, but the people at 20th were just home runs as far as I was concerned extremely supportive, um, and I've always felt very at home here. So, um, I, you know, it's the best of both worlds. I got to leave the Fox you know, News Association, however light that was. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't the same, you know, no, none of the same people, but I, I just was uncomfortable with it. So I got to leave that, but yet stay with the same, you know, overall the same management. So it was sort of a no-brainer for me. You know, there's a, there are a lot of opportunities at the new company developing for, whether it's to develop for ABC, but also, of course, to develop for Hulu and FX and Disney Plus, to name a few. So I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm excited about the opportunities. I think we're all on the same page on what I want to do and what they want from me. So, um, you know, once Modern Family ends, I will take a three-week breather and then I will dive back in.
2: I mean, what platform are you most excited about getting to develop for after such a long um, and successful career on broadcast?
3: Well, I have very specific, you know, I have a very specific approach to development, which is simply don't pre-sell anything. You know, I'm very much a fan of developing things internally. And by internally, I mean in my office and, you know, taking it as far as I can take it before deciding where that thing should be. Because I think so often you start with a project and you think it's going to be one thing, but in the writing, it, it just starts to become something else. And, and while and you're going, oh, I already sold this to, you know, for example, I already sold this to ABC, but now this is starting to feel like an FX show. And I don't, I don't want that and I don't need to do that. So what I want to do is is develop projects, you know, very under the radar, figure out the best place for them to go where they'll succeed. You know, if I'm going to do a show about family or something that I just feel like is easy to do on broadcast television, then that might be the right move. But um, if I'm doing a show about, you know, for example, dating, I don't want to do that on broadcast. I I want to do it someplace where I can be a bit more honest and straightforward about that. So I will make those decisions as they come. And I think that uh, that's going to be one of the really interesting things about going forward is I can I could. You know, I could do that.
1: Well, Emmy-wise, you guys were very much kind of the last of your kind. In your mind, what would it actually take in 2019, 2020 for a broadcast show to actually win the comedy series or drama series Emmy in this landscape? And in your opinion, does that need to be reconsidered or changed?
3: I, I don't know how you could change that. You know, as soon as you start, you know, over-defining it, then, you know, in, in a weird way the, the win would feel less special best comedy, you know, doing more than 20 episodes a season, you know, like it's, it's going to feel weird. So, you know, I think that it is what it is. You know, if modern family had debuted uh, this past year, instead of 10 years ago, I think we would have been very much in the conversation. So it's just about a show it's just about, you know, you know the, old, the old cliche, lightning in a bottle, something amazing happening. And, you know, look, look at the way people came to This Is Us. You know, the, the last thing I think anybody was expecting was, uh, you know, to, to have a, you know, incredibly critically acclaimed network drama. And then all of a sudden that thing came roaring out of the gate and, and, and that changed uh, that landscape. So it's just, you know, it's magic happening. And, and it can happen anywhere. Um, it can happen, you know, obviously with something as small and unexpected as Fleabag, because it's just brilliant. It's just, a, you know, an amazing vision by, a, you know, by a writer, well-executed by an incredible team. And that's all everybody should be trying to do. And if you succeed in that, then whether you're on network television or you're on a streamer, I think you still have a great chance.
1: Were you aware, though, when you guys were in that streak where you were winning every year that you were kind of the last thing holding back the tide, as it were?
3: <laughs> no, and I'm I'm not going to say that we'll be the last thing. Um, but it was a I, I, I will say that when we were in that incredible run, there wasn't a second that I wasn't ridiculously grateful knowing how rare and unique that was. And how it will soon end and how once it ends, it's gone. I told myself that every every single year. And I it's funny because the you know the Emmys were just this past week and it brings back it brings up feelings and, and I always remember like the morning after even the morning after we would win for those five years, I my inclination was always to feel the morning after to feel a little bit, weirdly exposed and and that feeling that sort of this uncomfortable feeling of like wow we're really out there now and and the only way that that feeling i could make that feeling go away was by getting in and working and trying to earn it again that was always the thing that made me feel a little bit strangely more comfortable was just going back and doing doing the work so at the end of the day you know, whether you're on a network, whether you're on a streamer, whether you're, you know, producing something for a phone, you know, you just everybody's got to do the the work that feels true to them and, and specific to them and um, and let everything else take care of itself.
2: You know, you, you, obviously, everyone right now is talking about Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Fleabag. And after the Emmys, you know, one question we always love asking showrunners is, what are you watching how many things do you subscribe to? What platform? You know, like there, there's so many choices right now. Five hundred plus scripted, so many different platforms, more coming. What do you watch?
3: You know, ironically, or not, maybe not ironically. I, I, I haven't been watching a lot lately. I, I, I've been busy with some other things, and um, I don't know. I think I just needed to clear my head. I, I did watch Fleabag. I loved it. Um, I fully predicted. Exactly what happened Sunday night. Uh, Not that I'm so smart, but uh, (laughs) like a lot of people, I predicted it. I was not surprised at all. I thought that was extremely special and uh, and and well deserved. You know, I watched Veep. I watched Barry. I just started uh, the other night. I watched the first episode of The Righteous Gemstones. So I, but I'm, I'm, I'm very behind on a bunch of other things. That I have this like ridiculous list that's causing me great angst because I haven't gotten to those yet. But I just moved. I'm just settling in, and then I'm hoping to dig into a bunch of those shows.
2: Well, that's all the questions that we have. Steve Levitan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate the time.
1: Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Uh, The 11th and final season of Modern Family has already premiered on ABC. The show airs Wednesdays at 9
2: p.m. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include Ryan Murphy's first streaming show, The Politician, on Netflix, the transparent musical finale on Amazon, Fox's new animated comedy, Bless the Hearts, Epic's drama, The Godfather of Harlem, plus season two of Sorry for Your Loss, and Fox's Almost Family, or as you called it, Dan? Spermanent vocation. What you got?
1: I've got a bunch of shows that maybe aren't necessary to watch, and some that... Are. Uh, I remain a big fan of Sorry for Your Loss on Facebook Watch. I think that it is a gentle show that covers a wide range of human emotions and that probably is tough to sell. And yet, why should it be tough to sell? It stars Elizabeth Olsen and Kelly Marie Tran and uh, Giovanna Depot, who's going to be a huge star thanks to Jack Ryan, and Janet McTeer, who has Oscar nominations. It, it shouldn't be a hard show to sell and so here i am telling you it's a show about grief but also stuff you should watch so that's one you should definitely be checking out let's see big mouth is for next week's podcast so we won't get there uh and vocation yeah you don't need to get and (laughs) Pass. it's just it's it's a show that is way more cute and light than a show about a fertility doctor who does really really icky sexual assaulty things should be yeah and
2: you should check out our showrunner spotlight interview with jason Kadams and how he plans on handling that icky part going forward
1: i am not necessarily sure it's being handled well but jason Kadams has done a lot of very good shows and so i don't want to rule out the possibility um then there, uh, you know what
2: about the the politician dan
1: what about the politician yeah the politician is not good it's it's a mess of a show but I'm sort of with the critical consensus on this one that if you make it to episode eight of The Politician, it's basically a teaser for the second season, and it introduces characters played by Judith Light and one by Bette Midler, who you will be astounded has never done a Ryan Murphy production before. She is so natural with his stuff. I am truly looking forward to the second season of The Politician, and I think the first season is, for the most part, pretty bad. Um, It it has things that work, but if you ask me about the first seven episodes of The Politician, I would say, yeah, that's not a good show. So... But I'm looking forward to season two. So that is a that is a weird position to be in and a weird position to be in with a Ryan Murphy show because normally the joke goes that Ryan Murphy shows go off the rails in season two.
2: Well, the joke is that Ryan Murphy shows go off the rail after the pilot.
1: Well, that happens too. And yet Pose didn't go off the rail. American Crime Story didn't go off the rail. So maybe it's a facile joke on our part and maybe this one will, will work. I'm looking forward to seeing if they make any acknowledgement of what a mess they've made of Saturday Night Live on the Saturday Night Live premiere. And yeah, that's that's still a pretty fair amount of stuff. And if you're like me after this week, because you've been busy doing other things, you already have about 10 hours of returning shows on your DVR that you haven't had the chance to get to. So yeah,
2: I, I caught up with uh, I watched the Goldbergs and schooled premieres. I'm a big fan of that franchise. And it was nice to see to be back with that. Those those characters. Again. Th-
1: those are those are on my on my list for this weekend, along with Survivor 90 minute premiere. Always happy when they want to bring back Sandra and Boston Rob, even though I don't know how I feel about the format. So, yeah, like guess. Guess what, kids?
2: There's a lot of TV.
1: Hell of a lot of TV.
2: Yeah, well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
1: We are available to subscribe to on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Uh, If you want to help us get the word out and you like the podcast, give us a rating. Preferably, I mean, a high one. If you want to say nice things about us in a review, we like hearing that too. Uh, We also like hearing from people on Twitter. We're always happy to hear your Criticism, commentary, whatever. General
2: feedback. Feedback. And and if you have TV questions.
1: Oh, yes. If you have TV questions, we are probably due for a mailbag segment just about any time. And you can reach us at TV's Top Five. That's the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
2: Until next week, Dan.